Ladies and gentlemen, hello, hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Sherm in the Booth. Ooh, ooh. My name is Sherm. You guys are some true Chicagoans for coming out in January. It's snowing outside, it's freezing, and you're at the f***ing club at 1 a.m. Boys with the bass, yeah, boys, boys, bass. Who am I talking to right now? You're famous. <laughs> free food, free drinks, music. Girls, let's go. Do you like it? Cool. If you don't, goodbye. <laughs> I'm missing the most important part. Boys in the face, yes. We should throw like a crazy like bar mitzvah party. This, this is crazy. Send me stems. I finished it. <laughs> hey, what's up, guys? How is everyone doing? Just wait, you know it kicks in like three to five seconds afterward. (laughs) (laughs) Yo, yo, what's up everyone and welcome back to another brand new episode of Sherman the Booth. I'm, of course, your host, Sherm, and today is Wednesday, February 8th, 2023, and this is episode 218. Hope everyone is having an amazing start to the year and is ready for an incredible interview today. I know most of you know how much I love connecting with both sides of the music industry, and today we have a back-end titan who's been making waves for a long, long time. We have the VP, Vice President of Disco Donnie Presents, Evan Bailey on, and I couldn't be more excited to share this episode with y'all. Evan and I met late last year at ADE in October, and after hearing him speak on branding and sponsorships, I knew I had to get him on Sherman the Booth. In episode 218, we got it all in and started by talking about his journey into the music industry. Born in New York City but raised in Ohio, Evan always had a profound love for music. He was in a band in college and always planned on rock and punk until he went to his first rave and saw Chicago legend Paul Johnson killing it and fell in love with dance music. He shifted gears and went all in on electronic music, throwing parties, DJing, and immersing himself in this new world. Eventually crossed paths with the one and only Disco Donnie and joined forces. The rest is history. Now, of course, we talked about Evan's role with Disco Donnie Presents. He came in in the early stages and has been a core influencer in helping the event and promotion company explode over the past 20 plus years. As vice president, Evan is responsible for a little bit of everything and there's nothing that is below him when it comes to making the experience a memory that their fans will never forget. Spanning over 100 cities around the world, Evan helps Disco Donnie Presents produce thousands of live music events and festivals like Ubby Dubby, Sunset Music Festival, Freaky Deaky, and Lights All Night each year. We also had a great conversation on how Disco Donnie makes sure to push equity, inclusion, and diversity programming. One of Evan's major focuses is making sure that their events are a safe and comfortable place for both patrons, artists, and vendors. Evan recently set up a music scholarship through Vanderbilt that honors their former colleague Leon Jackson and it gives anyone the opportunity to pursue music as a career full-time. Evan also works very hard to give a spotlight to diverse and -and up-and-coming artists to play at their events. His passion certainly shows on and off the stage. I loved this portion of the interview. 2023 is just getting started, but Evan and the Disco Donnie team have a massive year plan that is sure to drop some jaws. I cannot wait to see what they have coming. Evan is one of the most humble, driven, and intelligent people I've met in the industry, and I'm so glad we made the time to get his full story. 
Thank you so much for coming on, my friend, and I look forward to connecting again soon. Now let's get into it right now so you can hear his story for yourselves. This is episode 218 with Evan Bailey. Ladies and gentlemen, hello, hello, and welcome to Sherm in the Booth. It is my honor to welcome Evan Bailey, the VP of Disco Donnie, onto the show. Evan, coming to us from Ohio in one of the coolest backdrops and offices I've seen in a while. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on. Appreciate Absolutely. it. It is it is such a pleasure. Um, I told a lot of people that uh, ADE was one of the most transformative experiences for me, um, how much I learned, the people that I met, and you were one of those incredible people that I did meet. So it's awesome to connect with you outside of ADE. And uh, yeah, man, it's just flown by since then, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been a busy fall. We had, a, after I left ADE, we had a few, well, four festivals until the end of the year. So, uh, yeah. That was mid-October for the people that don't know when ADE was. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Gosh, yeah, strong into the year. But, um, you know, I usually have uh, DJs, producers, artists on, but my personal favorite types of interviews are people like yourself who are more behind the scenes. I believe you guys are the lifeblood of the industry. You're the ones who help put the events on, support the artists, give us those stages. And I think it's really interesting to get the perspective of someone like you who works at such an incredibly successful and massive and amazing company like Disco Donnie. So I know the viewers are going to really like this one too. Great. Well, I'm excited to tell you what goes on behind the, the curtain, I guess. <laughs> Whatever you're allowed to reveal. I'm sure we're going to find out a lot about the plans for this year, but um, I want to start off uh, by asking you, Evan, I always like to kick it off with a question. We're you know already halfway into January 23, which is so crazy, but I wanted to ask, what were some of your highlights from last year? Uh, it could be music or non-music related, because it was a big year in dance music. Well, that's a great question. I mean, I kicked off the year. I had a second child, uh, my son, Henry. So all right, came off to a strong start. It was interesting for me because, you know, we had kind of been through the pandemic, kind of got going again. Um, we threw Ubby Dubby in 21. It was the first festival back in the world. Um, kind of an amazing and transformative, honestly, experience, uh, not only for us, but hopefully for the industry. Mm -hmm. Um and yeah, so I had a kid and I was sort of on paternity leave. And, um, you know, when I came back, it's amazing that, you know, this industry, even in a handful of months, it changes so rapidly. Yeah. Um, so kind of had to start hitting the ground running over the last summer as we were kind of going to the fall with uh, festivals and tours and the like. So I, I don't know. I think some of the highlights, um, you know, there are ones that I think people notice. And then there's ones that, you know, are close close to me I, you know one of the big things we did last year was acquired uh lights all night which is uh one of the longest or if i think the longest running festival in texas and it's on new year's weekend um and so we got to kind of produce that for the first time soup to nuts you know through the whole campaign and work on the art and um you know i guess consider how its branding might differ from other texas festivals and those kind of things um so that was a pretty fun exercise and it ultimately culminated with the sold out event um and a large indoor event which you know it's not something we do we do kind of routinely anymore yeah um so that was a big highlight um one of the things i'm really proud of we launched um a scholarship in the name of one of our um former colleagues leon jackson who worked he was one of the original guys uh, when I first started working with Donnie, he was a promoter in the South, and eventually we all worked together. But um, 
he passed away unfortunately of colon cancer about five years ago and uh we worked with vanderbilt university uh which is uh you know he leon lived in nashville and established a music scholarship in his name um, an endowed scholarship you know one that'll give in perpetuity um for you know i i guess uh, uh students who come from kind of diverse backgrounds and that can mean a lot of things right it can mean yeah. economics it can mean racial you know identity things of that nature gender um so personally i was really really proud of that yeah um, um and i guess you know we went through our um kind of second iteration of travel events in 22 mm-hmm. um which is you know an area we got into in 21 with um millennium and ember shores and yeah. vision and paradise blue and we kind of produced you know sophomore versions of ember shores for instance and it was just kind of interesting to see the different crowds of travel events um start planning you know paradise blues going into its second year this spring uh we propped up a new one with cascade and dead mouse called sun soaked and friends and yeah, i don't know we spent a lot of time in mexico so that was uh <laughs> no that's a good thing usually yeah it could um, be worse. yeah it re- kind of reminded me of the old days we hadn't been doing shows in Mexico and I don't know, it had been 10 years or something. So it was good to get back there and see how that stuff worked. And I don't know, I just really enjoy seeing fans and travel events. I guess I didn't expect that, you know, I think, you know, so many of these fans that go to these travel events, the first time they get a passport and, you know, I think the events have a kind of a talisman effect in the sense that a young person gets a passport they use it they get kind of this global educate small global education and then you know hopefully do that again maybe it's a trip with friends or whatever so it's i I don't know personally i found that you know kind of rewarding to see people doing traveling internationally for the first time yeah that's really interesting i i'm sure actually i never even thought about that probably a lot of people get their passports for the first time when they go to these travel events which is so Or some wait to the last second, of course, but yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Can't do that with passports these days, though. Everything's backlogged. Yeah, I've learned a lot about expediting passports. If you ever oh, need, oh, have to, you? I bet, yeah. Uh, I know where to, what cities do them and all that stuff. So, okay, yeah. tell me if I'm wrong. Buffalo does them, right? Buffalo, New York. Um, I, want, I know Detroit does them. Okay. I've I've seen people go there. Uh, we had one staff member I think went to boston i'm pretty sure miami is one of them um so there's yeah i guess and there's brokers or not brokers but like people who do this professionally so if you're really in a pickle um you'd be surprised how fast you can get a passport if you're willing to pay for it so wow good to know america baby capitalism we love that that's right (laughs) money talks yeah awesome wow what an amazing year for you and uh it's it's crazy now like it's already 2023 and when we start talking back like into 2020 which time didn't exist and then into 2021 when ww was april 2021 right yeah the first one yeah back yeah what was that like being sort of the the spearhead and and for lack of a better term maybe the guinea pig of festivals coming back i mean i know you guys took a lot of precautions i saw an interview that you did and uh you guys did a really really good job of rolling it out but was there hesitance was there excitement a little bit of everything I get like nervous thinking about it. I'll have a drink. Well, suck. <laughs> Love it. Um, honestly, it was terrifying. Yeah. I mean, what happened was there's a lot of different dimensions to it. I mean, at the time, there wasn't a ton of knowledge about a lot of things. You know, we have vaccines now. We have yeah. there were vaccines coming out that spring, but not totally rolled out. 
We know a lot more about how it uh, the, the virus transmits in you know outdoor spaces versus indoor and et cetera. So a lot of that, you know, you have to imagine a world where that didn't really, we didn't have firm knowledge. Um, and we were like a lot of promoters, we were pushing events forward. It was like, all right, that's not going to happen. Push it forward six months, you know, and the tickets and fans wanted to go, but it was a weird thing where you had to tell them, okay, another six months. And we were in an unusual circumstance in the sense we had an event on the books in April in Dallas of 21. Yeah. And in March, I think it was March 17th, around St. Patrick's Day, Governor Abbott said, I'm going to rip the Band-Aid off state. We're opening up 100%. I'm done with all this. Um, and I remember sitting right in this office and looking at it and being partially happy and partially like, oh, my God. Yeah. Because um, I knew we were going to face this discussion whether or not to do the event and of course like any team you know there's a you know a dozen or so, so of us that are kind of the core team yeah you know we're in new york and ohio and texas and florida and california and everybody had widely varying opinions yeah um, not to mention um we knew we potentially could screw this up for the whole industry um, so that was a lot of pressure. And probably the biggest thing was generally when we promote festivals, it's a year long process and people don't realize that. I mean, we start planning stuff pretty much right after the first, the festival ends for the next year. So, you know, we were looking at essentially a month and a week to produce a festival that we hadn't really done anything for. A lot of vendors weren't moving fast, sponsors weren't doing anything. Um, so I started taking a ton of calls, me and a couple other people on the team with various vendors around the country. There were fly-by-night testing operations. There were medical people we knew that were trying to work this stuff out. And eventually I was looking at a lot of what sports were doing. Um, I believe at the time it might've been we might have just got through uh smart yeah i forget maybe it was baseball i started looking at some of those playbooks yeah i noticed a couple of the baseball teams i think it was were talking to clear mm -hmm. it's the airport technology company yeah, yeah. and they had worked out this health passport thing um that essentially was going to verify people's identity and testing or um, at least do a screener there's various lot conditional logic you could load into this program mm -hmm. And I, we liked the way the brand name looked. It looked like trust. It looked like, you know, there were adults in the room. People knew, um, you know, had experience not only with sports, but, you know, airports. And yeah, definitely. Um, so we onboarded um, and developed a pretty, I think, comprehensive plan. You know, behind the scenes, we were also going to research what happened. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so we were basically planning a survey, you know, after the event, like, did you get COVID and those kind of things. And we yeah, compared sure. those data to the modeling in the region. And I, we actually worked with somebody from the WNBA on this project, wow. uh, produced a white paper on it, but it was, we were trying to understand, do outdoor events post more risk than say anything else you'd be doing, going to the grocery store, this or that. Yeah. And what we found was that the rates were actually lower um, because people were outdoors, but at the yeah. time, that wasn't common knowledge. You know, you were better off in a field at WW than you were at a house party or a restaurant. Um, <laughs> wow. So, but it was an amazing event. Very hard to put on. A lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Um, 
we're actually probably going to release some footage at some point about it uh once we i don't know you know when time the time is right but yeah, um, it's still going on to certain some extent uh we're kind of sifting through it actually we've been you know it's when he's like i don't know it's like projects in your house where i gotta remodel all that thing <laughs> I'll to tomorrow um we've been going through it so you know it's probably something we'll uh release at some point but you know i'll never forget um at the end of the night night two i was sitting there i typically you know go up to vip at some point or there just and try to enjoy the show or front of house sure. right at the end and i was sitting there and like donnie's there and michelle's there and i think steve gordon was there and jake bernstein and a bunch of these agents and like we all you know the team had this hug and i could tell like i get emotional thinking about it but you know like steve was emotional um i think pretty sure cascader elenium was playing at the time but it was you know it's just one of those things you'll never forget for the rest of your life and um oh but yeah I, I you know we, we got a lot of messages you know thank you for doing this and um i think it gave a lot of agents courage and a lot of artists courage because you know there was discussion even with the artists internally i know cascade and Elenium were talking like are you gonna do this are you gonna do this oh, yeah for sure all right i guess let's do this you know they're people too that's justified yeah well i mean there was medium twitter is uh interesting oh. place sometimes especially in a pandemic wow. and you're talking about the first festival back so yeah. <laughs> um yeah there was a lot of a lot of stuff but it worked out worked out um but it's one of those things i'll never never ever forget yeah well mad respect and props to you guys because i remember when that was announced and i think as a fan of dance music like you said i was excited but at the same time as a fan i didn't want to lose any progress we were making so i i obviously wasn't in the room where it happened but i definitely can relate to sort of that just that that middle ground where you want to take that chance, but you want to do it respectfully and safely. And yeah, you you became a passport expert and a COVID expert over the past two years. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, at least really <laughs> testing and those sorts of things. Yeah, awesome. That's what I love about this industry. It's what I've always loved about advertising is you become a little mini expert in things. And uh, <laughs> the, the I don't know, it's a the journey or a lot of. Um, a lot of research, you know, and I, the insight that comes from it, to me, it's really fascinating. Yeah, I, I always think about how you can be an expert in your experiences and that that can be in whatever walk of life or whatever you know experience that you have. And yeah, it sounds like you've definitely gained your own expertise in a lot of different random fields. Yeah, I'm sure there's other random things, but the, yeah. that's, one, that's a more recent one, yeah that happens well we're going to get more into disco donnie later but one of the main reasons i wanted to talk to you today evan is just to form, find more about your story uh just from talking to you at ade and learning more about you sure. research I, I know you're a midwest guy i'm from indiana i'm here in chicago you're in ohio that's right uh, i'd love to hear more about like where you grew up and when music came into your life sure yeah i mean i guess the short answer is you know i was born in new york i moved to ohio pretty young my parents um came to a town called kent ohio to do their phds essentially cool. um, both of my parents are anthropologists so they moved around a lot like we grew up in fields essentially and weird <laughs> places and that kind of stuff and i guess we sort of settled down in this area um i in i you know i always loved music i mean i think I, pretty much as long as i can remember you know and I started picking up a guitar around 10 or 11 and um, at the time 
gr the grunge was exploding, you know, yeah. so th that was the stuff that really interested me. And I think within time, I became more interested in improvisation. So I was interested in fish and the dead and yeah. those communities and, and jazz. And eventually that led me to jazz. Mm -hmm. So I was super interested in jazz. Um, I actually, when I enrolled in college, I was a jazz guitar major. Like that's what I wanted to do with my life. Um, at 18, I lived in a house with uh, members of my band. Essentially, I lied to the university about where I lived. I always oh, lived at home because I wanted to live in a house where I could have a band. Yeah, that's awesome. So I never lived in the dorms or residence halls or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I started hang I, at the time I had a job actually at an amusement park mm -hmm. um and it was a funny amusement park this is not like a squeaky clean this amusement isn't king's park. island right no it's called Geauga lake jungle lake um, okay the lake still exists the park does not oh too bad um but i was a gamer I, so i was a real shy guy in high school and i don't know how i got this job but through <laughs> friends and stuff so it really brought me out of my shell and it kind of you know, come on, you want to play my game and a little bit of hustling. I mean, you'd get people that were not so a little bit unsavory and you'd have to kind of work with them yeah, and stuff. Yeah. Um, and I was so I sort of became like this, I don't know, carny or hustler or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> yeah. I can speak carny, by the way, from that time. Uh, <laughs> probably not something to brag about. Um, but anyway, right so, audience. so all of all of the people I worked with um we eventually i became a manager and the way we were paid there is we were paid at the end of the summer mm. so you had you know 16 17 18 year olds at the end of the summer in, in the 90s getting 5 10 15 20 grand of money at once so, so we had these globs of money which was more money than any of us had ever had at one sitting or whatever yeah so it's like well what do we do with this money right and one of the guys you know he he went to raves and stuff he's like we need to throw a party. So um, I started helping these guys throw parties or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first party I worked with them, I sold water. And we, you know, we had like Terrence, uh, who had Terrence Parker, he's still around, Scott Henry, mm -hmm. Harry Mullen, who's, you know, was, was one of my real early influences. Um, and around this time, I was, you know, I mentioned I was like deeply into jazz guitar. Yeah. I started getting interested in the turntables and i remember one day i saved up enough money for a paul reed smith guitar nice um i went to the store to buy this paul reed smith and something in me kind of snapped and i ended up buying turntables i bring them home all my housemates you know are in the band stuff so like what the hell what is this <laughs> um so i i don't want to say i had a falling out with them but it was like i kind of put a stake in a different area of the ground and sure started experimenting with records at the time it was a lot of break beats and uh chicago influenced me a lot in cleveland and so did new york you know it's mm -hmm. kind of like a pizza or something you're not quite thin crust or chicago <laughs> well said. yeah and the, you know the midwest had an awesome rave scene yeah and i went to this one rave i just told the story the other day um i did an interview for audience republic and they're like what's the show that kind of yeah. did it and i went to this new year's party in 98 99 in springfield ohio which is a place that if you if you've been there it's not a place you visit like no. you go there for a rave or something I, yeah. I i'm sure it's very nice but yeah um, at least me at the time so i go to this warehouse rave at this the 
like an antique mall or something. It's New Year's. And I go in and I walk in. This is the weekend that Music Sounds Better With You came out. Um, I don't know if you know that record, but of course. everybody was playing it. Great record. And it was kind of like, whoa, it was like taking records up a notch. You know, there were certain records like the Horny Song and that and a couple things that were like, where did this record come from? It doesn't sound like the other records. Yeah, jazz influences those for sure, too. Yeah. And I remember I walked in and by the time I kind of got situated and was watching the music, I went up to the stage and uh, Paul Johnson was playing. Nice. And I didn't know anything about Paul Johnson or whatever. And he, here was a guy in a wheelchair on this like special riser that was real low. Yeah. And I think he had four decks and he was just destroying this place. And I was, it, you know, it blew my mind. It was like, yeah. I it, everything I thought about a lot of things was my preconceived notions was just sort of blown away at an instant. And then from that point on, I was just like all in on the thing. And yeah. Um, I started DJing and then I wanted to get gigs, right? So of course. I went to, uh, this is an interesting little tidbit. I went to this club night in Kent, Ohio, where I lived. And I said, hey, I want to play. And I made a mixtape and all this stuff. And the girl ran it, who I'm still friends with. Um, she was very nice and everything. She was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, so I was like, fuck this. I'm going to start my own night. And I did. Same club, different night. And it me and a friend kind of built this thing up and outgrew the club and um we were actually promoting drum and bass at the time nice um and i was playing house so that i'm sure that i'm sure the audience loved that yes um, and we started booking talent and i was i was talking to kevin gimbal about this the other day i said do you remember when i used to book you know diesel boy and sign and all those guys mm -hmm. through when he was in philly and he's like oh my god that was freaking 25 years ago or something <laughs> He's like, don't tell anybody that. So sorry, Cohen. Um, uh, so yeah, that's how it started. And I, then I started going up to Cleveland and um, doing shows and getting booked up there. And it kind of felt like the big city, which is silly now, but it, it to me it was. Yeah, of course. Um, and not too long after that, I kind of got like a. It was interesting. He's almost like a business partner, manager, and promoter kind of friend, and. Yeah. We started doing big shows and he had another guy he worked with and long story short by then it's 2003 or four and uh you know donnie moves to ohio mm -hmm. and at first it was kind of like oh no i've heard about this guy he's like the legend of the south you know yeah. he was like there was scott henry on the east coast and donnie in the south and pascal in the west and it was yeah. very territorial and tribal back then so it was like this guy's moving into Columbus. Like that's too close for comfort. Um, and I'll, I, I tell Donnie his story and other people, I, I'll never forget the first time I got an email from him and it was very characteristic Donnie, like no capitalization, very positive. And it was like, we should work together, not apart. And I, I never forget that email. Um, it's amazing. I remember exactly where I was sitting when he sent it. And I think we did like a fairy course in Paul Van Dyke show or something. Um, and the rest is history. I mean, I could tell you that part of the history, um, wow. but that you know that was twenty years ago, and just you know how disco and crew and uh, there's a bunch of stories there. But oh my god, that's how that was the start essentially. To um, that's amazing, Evan. Really, really great story. Thanks for sharing that. And I think it's definitely worth mentioning. I mean, you went to college still, right? And we're yeah. studying advertising, and you got a master's in journalism. Is that correct? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I got, did advertising. Wow. Um, mostly interested in design, mm -hmm. the creative side of advertising. 
Um, and then, yeah, I taught advertising and got my master's in journalism. I worked in newspapers and ad agencies. So yeah. when I first started working with Donnie, you know, he, he sort of tapped me for just that was design. And admittedly, uh, we started doing a lot of shows. So I was like a kind of a production guy in the sense that like, I love doing it. So sure. Donnie needs flyer at 10 PM. Let's do it. You know, let's get <laughs> um, and that, that was kind of how we first started working together. That's amazing. So you, you really came in with like, obviously this passion for music that clearly just called out to you uh, when you walked into the store that day. And then when you saw Paul Johnson, it was meant to be. And then you still yeah. sort of had that mindset where I'm interested in advertising journalism. And did you know that this might work out together someday? Or were you kind of just going with the flow? I think I did. Um, I don't know how I did. I didn't come from a lot of money. So I, I was yeah. always, I don't know, I kind of believe you're born a hustler and it like it can be sharpened by experience right or your family or your friends or whatever Agreed. i needed to make money so yeah in college i remember i took a bunch of student loans to open a recording studio and i wanted to do just that like a dj recording studio which didn't exist and i'm cd duplication and design and i was just interested in all that stuff and learning as much about computers as i could mm -hmm. um so I think early on that was there. And in fact, that was one of the reasons I gravitated toward advertising and journalism was it was like, wait, I can take a little bit from film and a little bit from pop culture and a little bit from design. And yeah. those are all things I love and music, you know, let's, let's do it. So, yeah, I guess I, I don't, don't want to say I had a North star cause you know, it's like that changes, but. I mean, you don't know college is like, you're just kind yeah. of doing it. You're doing what you love or trying to at least. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think I did follow my passion. That's for sure. Yeah, I, I resonate with that deeply. I, I went to IU and studied uh, telecommunications, media production and design. I do not do that for my day job, but I do that for this podcast. And I never really realized until I kind of got, you know, into Chicago and was like, I've always wanted to do a podcast and realized that I already had the tools. I knew how to market myself. I knew how to create it. I knew how to um, just go about it. And all these years later, I was just talking to my dad and he said, you know, when you went to Chicago and got a sales job, I was proud and then didn't know much about music, but to see you now, uh, excelling and putting everything that you learn, uh, in college, uh, and applying it to your passion is like the most rewarding thing as a father. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm emotional. I didn't even think about these sort of things. Right. But sometimes yeah. when people give you perspective, it opens up your own perspective, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think about that with little kids, you know, I have two little kids and I think about, I don't know, trying to cultivate those passions, whatever it is. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure what it'll be, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You always got to follow your heart too. That's the advice that I give out and it's cliche to say, but it really is the truth. Yeah, definitely. Amazing. So let's get into Disco Donnie a little bit more for, for those that don't know, and I'm pretty sure everybody that watches this is going to know, but Disco Donnie started in 1994, which is crazy. So you said he came to Ohio in 2003? Yeah. yeah right so he had around already there. been doing it about 10 years, putting on his own events. Correct. Yeah, he had been um, doing them in the South. He had done these, you know, I don't want to speak for him, but, you know, a string of parties called the Zulu parties. We're actually doing Zulu 29 next month. What? Uh, yeah. That's uh, awesome. Um, the caffeine parties. uh you know, Hong Kong Fui. He had a, he, he kind of like a, had this New Orleans kind of um, 
almost like a carnival kind of going on. Like you'd pick performers off the street and slam yeah. them together and very imaginative stuff. And I think still pretty progressive even by today's standards. Um, so yeah, he was, you know, he was already sort of a legend um, of the South when I met him. I, I think when I, when I met Donnie, I think part of what he was, he had already been doing shows in different cities, yeah. but I think what, I kind of worked with him on early on was sort of this expansion, this rapid expansion. So, yeah. you know, we were doing stuff in Cleveland where I live, Columbus, where he was, Indy, um, still work with Slater Hogan to this day. Uh, Leon. Yeah. Leon Slater. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, Leon in Nashville. There are some other characters, you know, and we were, you know, routing things through uh, Florida and Texas and trying different cities, but essentially the idea, which wasn't, super done a lot was you know putting djs on tour buses and those kind of things yeah. um like we do oak and fold that way for instance um mm-hmm. you know there had been some tours like moonshine over america and stuff like that but uh we we kind of really hammered that in until we eventually i think what year was that i think it was 2006 or seven we merged with insomniac yeah right uh, and then I kind of took stuff to a whole other level. So yeah, it was those were there was a wild, wild ride those years. There was a lot of economic uncertainty and just the whole thing with insomniac. It was so a decade. You know, this is what this is like. You know, five, six, seven years before it's going to become kind of commercially accepted or viable right. or something. So those were interesting years, like two thousand to two thousand ten. I would say. Yeah, I mean, you guys were visionaries. I mean, was it always dance music? Like, were you doing some bands because and or even hip hop and rap? Like, were you experimenting with fusions or how did it work during that time? There was some experiment. You know, Donnie always seems to kind of come back to the what he loves, which is dance music. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember doing a flyer for him. I don't even know if he'd remember this for Lady Gaga. <laughs> um, you know, there were the I don't know. There were the flow riders and stuff. I mean, there were yeah, yeah, exactly things like that. But I would say generally, like ninety nine point nine percent of what we book is uh, dance. You know, and that that may sort of change. You know, we may experiment with stuff here and there, and um, but it's it's what we you know it's in our DNA or whatever. Yeah, I'm that time period is really interesting for me, and and how you have this perspective of vinyl DJ. And then, you know, when you actually were creating flyers, printing those out, I mean, I assume you were basically handing out flyers to people, right? Like grassroots, yeah, marketing. There was no social media when you guys first started, like it is now, at least. Not not like it is now. I mean, there were internet forums. I mean, yeah. to this day, we Donnie still believes and I still believe in flyering. Um, partially because it's not the most e- the environmentally friendly thing in the world. But, yeah. you know, we often do it at festivals because the ROI is good on it. Mm-hmm. Box of flyers get the message out really quickly you know sometimes people like those at festivals yeah uh, it's kind of it's something where we have a hard time letting go of but we certainly don't print like we used to <laughs> um and you know because of social media but yeah it was it was a different a different time a lot of flyering a lot of like chat boards and forums um I remember actually, funny enough, SMS was a thing. Your phone used to let you like carbon copy people, like, and they wouldn't know it. Like, I remember I sit there at club nights, like, "Hey, will I see you tonight?" You know, and I would, you were able to copy it to like your whole phone and you know <laughs> that kind of stuff. Um, so there were wow. there were some tricks, and 
info lines and I don't know, there was, I don't know, stunts. Like I remember people would book, I don't know, weird old hip hop groups and porn stars and stuff to host their parties and stuff. So there were, there were like tricks, you know, both promotionally, but also in terms of the core product that, you know, are very different from now and all, but were so fun and interesting, I guess. Absolutely. And I mean, you said Donnie always comes back to dance music. I think everything is kind of cyclical. I mean, I've been in the industry for about 10 years now, which, you know, is nothing compared to you guys, but I have seen some things come full circle. You know, I, like I said, I went to college at IU in 2011. And when I went there freshman year, Levels had just come out. I saw Avicii play one of his first shows that was literally in his, his book, Tim, stopping in Bloomington, going to Vegas, right? It was just this boom that just happened. Well, it felt like to me so quickly since you guys were in it, did it seem like a gradual progression or did it happen faster than you expected as well? There were some like, uh, what I would call like seismic, not warnings. They were welcome warnings. I remember, I remember actually one time sitting in my office and Leon from our team called me and he was like, did you hear what happened in in Vegas last night? Referring to EDC. He's like, like, I forget what number he said, like 60,000 people showed up, you know, and this was like, 2004 or five yeah was, yeah you know like it was something was going on mm-hmm. but yeah that those um what was interesting for us during that time is you know we were the first acquisition of sfx um yeah insomniac almost came with us you know they ended up going to live nation and we knew sensation and tomorrow world and all this stuff were coming and the live nation was involved and it was crazy it was like a gold rush you know and i yeah. saw a lot of a lot of people I knew become kind of millionaires overnight and acquisitions. And I guess the weirdest thing was like being involved with this sort of billion dollar roll up of Beatport, Tomorrow World, you know, us, Life in Color, with the time it was Dayglow. Yeah, I remember. You know, Defcon, um, you know, all these crazy events. And it was really interesting, for, at least for me, like, I mean, first of all, I loved the music at that time. Like it was so much fun. I think about it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of that progressive house big era. Like it was I just love it. Yeah, it was good. It was good fun. Yeah. Um, but also, like you know, for me, like with SFX, like I was learning a lot really fast. Like for instance, I was seeing the blueprints of Tomorrow World, mm-hmm. you know, something they had been working on for you know way longer than we had been working on festivals and. Yeah. I was learning how Beatport worked, you know, the software, and I was learning um, how the how the big boys and girls do brand partnership. And um, wow. in fact, one of my mentors, um, Teresa Velasquez, she was actually killed in that condo um, thing in Miami a couple of years ago. But she taught me so much about, you know, just how to uh, wrangle brands and how to structure deals and all sorts of stuff. So it was so so many of those those years like i just i felt like i was learning a ton you know and yeah. um, we went from kind of like promoters that maybe had a lawyer here or there or an accountant <laughs> here or there to like kind of this really squeaky clean operation you know everybody's yeah. got insurance you know it was it became we grew up i don't know how else to put it yeah absolutely and what a special time that was just in in dance music i feel like you know, you brought up the progressive era, right? Like, I think it was, however, like sometime in the past three months, 10 year anniversary of Zed's Clarity. I mean, that feels like just yesterday that came out of it. And there's something about that music. Like if you were, you know, us, right? Like getting into it then, it just spoke to me 
And I couldn't even explain it. And I just became enamored and obsessed. And that's why I eventually started DJing kind of like you. I just was like so interested in wanting to pick it up and just never stopped. And I still love it just as much as the first time I heard it live. That's great. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the, I don't know. I'm always interested in like what gets people into it. Cause sometimes, um, you know, I see it in the industry, like people will be as supportive of certain artists or something because it's like oh they're sold out or they're too big but mm-hmm. you know what did what did you look like the first time you went to a party what did you listen to what did you dress like what did you know what it so you know some of these artists have the ability to kind of bring people into the fold mm-hmm. um you know i can't tell you how many people i know that used to love Steve Aoki and now love, I don't know, techno artist XYZ, you know, um, like myself used to love bad boy bill and I still love bad boy bill, but like, you know, eventually I learn of other stuff and some artists are really great at that. Um, Mm -hmm. I think, I think, you know, Peachy was so insanely talented and a lot of those acts from that time that they just brought so many people into, into this that I think, um, I think it was incredible, you know, frankly, what what a lot of those guys did, Tiesto, Armin, um, et cetera. Yeah. And in America, too, right? Like I I, since I'm so passionate about it, I've done research, watched documentaries, going to Amsterdam, learning about it. Right. Like it came from the U.S., Chicago and Detroit. Then it went to England and the U.K. and then it went over Europe and then sort of had that interim where it was still here, but it wasn't so like mainstream so to speak commercial and then now you see dance music is a part of every pop song always has been in some way um the songs on the radio you see a lot of other artists that have been able to bridge that gap especially in the house uh world these days so it's an exciting time i think and it's only getting better um and more creative and collaboration and it's just a fun time to be in the industry right now yeah, music never really snaps back once it's innovated. You know, it's like you can kind of look at jazz for that playbook. It's like Miles does this and nothing's ever the same after <laughs> it. You know, it's it's kind of the same thing. It's like, um, you know, at one point you listen to hip hop, you know, instrumental, it sounds kind of silly, but now you're listening to it. And it's like, wow, there's like some pretty serious production going on. So, yeah, yeah, it's, um, I guess the, it's a lot of those innovations have, transferred into sort of contemporary music i guess too yeah definitely definitely so i mean i want to ask you uh i've seen you quoted as saying it's all about the experience at a disco donnie event what exactly do you mean by that how do you guys sort of think about people that are going to come you curate the branding the food the drink the artists everything what goes into that process Boy, I don't even know where to start. Um, I'll, start with, I'll start with the festival branding. I mean, yeah. um, often we'll have sort of a collaborative talk. You know, it'll be people from our team, people from our video team, um, uh, I guess our design teams. And we'll kind of talk about what we want to do sort of loosely with like a festival for a year. Um, and what we're trying to do with that is not only like sync all the teams, but we're, we're also look at... Um, maybe what the narrative of that event will be for the year, you know, the mm-hmm. things we'll sort of talk about, et cetera. So, you know, that's often a pretty big, um, I don't know, channel or something that feeds a lot of what we do. Um, you know, it's, it might even make its way down to like a beverage menu or something, not only the way it looks, but like things we name things or, 
um, it can have, so it has an effect not only like in the online campaigns or, but also at the festival. Um, yeah. I think one of the things I've always loved about disco events, and I've heard people say this too, especially our festivals is they don't, they there's somehow we're able to kind of retain that sort of underground feel to them. Um, okay. yeah. in the sense that they're not, um, overly kind of squeaky clean like we you know we take we take donnie takes uh sound and lighting is extremely seriously um so that's often like kind of a cornerstone of like how we from a production standpoint look at things you know there's experimental stage design and those sort of things but those yeah. those are two check boxes that we take very seriously yeah. um i don't know i mean we do a lot of like weekly calls where we brainstorm events and um you know try to have fun with them sometimes it's with artists like in case of the travel events um you know often looking at things like art for instance um i mean I i'd be not telling the truth if i didn't tell you like ticket sales matter so you know the more tickets we sell the more cool stuff we do you know it's like we add production we add art um so you know, festival budgets kind of breathe a little bit, depending on yeah. what's going on in the market. Um, you know, for example, like WW21, we would just want all out basically, you know, like that kind of stuff. So I don't know. I mean, those are some of the things that I guess determine like yeah. what, what events sort of look and feel like. Um, mm -hmm. But there, you know, there's, there's many other ones, but, you know, I guess from like a marketing standpoint, you often look at, sort of the consumer journey, you know, what does, you know, from the time you see it online to you're getting your wristbands, to you're checking in to yeah. maybe the lost and found table to the, you know, whatever, like you, you really got to look at these, a lot of these different facets. So mm -hmm. I spent my time actually doing a lot of things that I don't know, you might not expect I do. Like I remember at lights all night, I wrote a few pages of copy just for the person at the guest services table. So it was sort of a consistent correct message you know it's not so i you know i don't know what you know people think you know people in this industry do but sometimes it's stuff like that you know and it really yeah. matters you know because somebody's has questions or i don't want to say in distress but like you know they're looking for help essentially um so and i think you know one of the, that was one of the things i sort of picked up working with pasquale and you kind of had that thing that you know a lot of people do like obsessed about the details um yeah and i i think that matters and you know if you're if you're a person who works events or you know or works for an event company like no job is sort of below you you know it's like you need to understand what it's like to get a flat tire in the, in the parking lot you need to know what it's like to sell or buy the water you know just things that you might think are sort of i don't know you know common or something yeah they all sort of add up to this cumulative experience um so I, I think that's kind of, I don't want to say it's a mantra, but it's like a way I think about it, um, yeah. is that the, even these little touch points matter. It's yeah. like when you go to a restaurant, you go into a restaurant, it's a five-star restaurant, and the front door is filthy or something. It's like, yep, what's going on here? You know, like, <laughs> it matters, essentially. Or you're not greeted or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think you said that perfectly. And the cool thing about you and, and the rest of the team is you guys were fans first, right? So you've had your fair share of good and bad experiences at festivals, at events. I have too, right? Like how long the line might be for water, the, the check-in to get will call, the yeah. bathroom situation, the lost and found, the food, the, like all those little things. 
and especially yeah. at sound and lighting, right? Like you want people to walk away saying, yeah, there were some things, right? Of course, but it didn't hinder my experience. Nothing's going to be perfect, but it sounded, looked great. It looked great. I got in and out. The parking was amazing, right? Like those little things that might not seem important are what people remember because we're human. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I guess you could almost look at it mathematically. It's a value prop, right? It's like you yeah. have a pile of benefits, things that kind of take away from it, what you paid for it. And you kind mm -hmm. of, people, you know, it's like people by nature tend to kind of consider all those things. Like, you know, some of the best meals we've had in restaurants, yeah. we don't think about what we paid for them, but you still yeah. might get mad at McDonald's if they screw up your order and it's $5. So, you know, people kind of weigh these different factors. Um, so in short, you know, seemingly sort of innocuous things are important. Definitely, definitely. And and I mean, you just mentioned something about sort of uh, ticket sales, how important they are, uh, at least from my experience and what I've been hearing. Hard ticket sales are, are not as easy as they used to be, not that they were ever easy, but, you know, with the rises of inflation, how much it costs to get places, uh, gas to the show, the flight, the hotel. How have you guys thought about that from sort of the consumer perspective, whether it be maybe trying to lower your prices or bring more value to that ticket? Well, you know, I actually believe fans will pay for something they feel has value to them. Mm -hmm. I think what we're seeing a little different now is that fans are being a little more choosy with how they open their pocketbook. Yeah. Um, and it's part of the reason we started doing stuff like travel events a little more, you know, they're, they're not cheap tickets, you know, when you're, right. they spend fans spend a fair amount of money to stay three days in Cancun with, you know, artist X or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I think what people are looking for is, you know, the right talent, a special venue, a special event, um, I just, you know, it's like the days of like propping up, you know, tons of sort of club nights with headliners and a bunch of cities. I'm not sure it's like the, what the next six to, to 12 months look like. Um, it's sort of a challenging inflation kind of era. Right. Um, it's, I don't think it's good for the fans. I don't necessarily think it's great for the promoters either. Mm -hmm. um, so I think you're seeing this correction, if you will, where not only fans, but promoters are being a little more choosy about the events they're doing. Um, so that's one thing. I mean, look, you know, like anything, you can look at your budgets and kind of um, yeah. look to, you know, save money here and there. But ultimately, I think it's, you kind of have to look inward before you kind of look. The last thing you want to do is increase prices. Um, yeah, right. Uh, because it, it, it just makes it even more difficult. So we've tried to be very conscious of that. Um, and you know things like payment plans um yeah um i don't know you know low low amounts of money down to get people sort of in the mindset of let's do this with their friends or whatever so um there are some you know sort of marketing tactics that go into it but i think that the underlying thing is that people and promoters right now sort of need these special events uh yeah. on, on both sides Completely agree, sir. And that's a really interesting perspective and response. I think it's a culmination of so many things, right? It's uh, a lot of time, a lot of time has passed over the past three years, you know, and and people lost jobs, income changed, changed jobs, moved, whatever it is, right? And the classic headline DJ X at this club that's going to be here probably again later this year or for this festival, you don't feel as inclined to go out and then let alone spend money at that venue that lost a lot of revenue that's paying yeah. you know, $16 for a gin and tonic or whatever it is, right? 
that's not that's not what a dance music fan wants so i think- also also say an unpopular thing and i'm sure yeah. people on, like our team would disagree with me on this but um you know this audience is getting older um, what i was gonna say right it's us like i, yeah. I get hung over as shit evan <laughs> so but it's like you think about your own life you know yeah. it's like i still like to go out and i love right. events but i've uh i'm choosier now and it's it's to use kind of a funny express it's got to be sexy you know it's like i want to <laughs> i want to feel good about where i'm at um it's pretty simple i want a nice drink i want a nice background i want some good music i want to be able to hear um, yeah it's i want a little bit of space so i don't think you know my opinion's that dissimilar um i do think you know i think there's a issue that probably a lot of promoters regardless of genre have to address is that you have a cohort of people let's say 18 19 20 who basically you know the first last two years of high school or first two years of college we're not having the kind of social experiences that many of us had you know prom like wild freshman year the frat house these sort of things you know a lot of them were virtual um you have the explosion of TikTok. you have a lot of these you know you have a recession you have you know, the deck kind of got scrambled with COVID in the first place, uh, you know, where people are living and the like. So um, I just, I think there's some work to be done, I guess, mm-hmm. to get sort of your average 18 or 19 year old out to, you know, dance music events or probably rock events, et cetera. I mean, I ask friends about this all the time. Like, When's the last time you went to a concert, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm just curious, you know, and about- Why did you go? What Was it the artist? Was it the venue? Was it the timing? So many things. Um, I think a lot of us were more in a pattern of going to events prior to the pandemic. And um, while there was some exuberance to return, I don't, I don't think it was sustained. Um, mm-hmm. So that's just my, my opinion or whatever, but um, I, I think there's some work to be done with the, the younger demo as it relates to dance music. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And, and I mean, there's that fine line too. You, you mentioned that, yeah, sort of like that, the the disocialization almost, right? Like behind the screens, through Zoom, whatever it is, like maybe they, that's, I mean, to be honest sometimes, right? It's hard to meet people in a dance music environment. Like festivals are a little different, but these indoor club shows, larger indoor venues, you need to go with people you know, and um, you can meet people certainly, but it's just different than it used to be. So. I don't know. I, I I definitely agree with you, though. Yeah, it's food for thought. Um, I know, um, you know, it's like my background was in education. I still talk to a lot of people in education. And it's something they're seeing with um, younger students right now. Um, yeah. uh, you know, just, just kind of socialized differently. And um, yeah, I don't know. It was, t- it was a tough couple of years for young adults, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And and on that note too, Evan, you mentioned uh, Disco Donnie does a lot with equity and diversity and inclusion. And I think that's a huge factor in um, just the world we live in now. Like people want to feel comfortable wherever they go. And I love that you guys have been pushing that. Can you tell me more about sort of how you've been spearheading this? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's an interest of mine and Donnie's and a bunch of people on the staff, but I think, um, you know, I, something we've always been interested in things like outreach, like in education. Um, you know, we used to work with Moog on sort of an education program in schools. And, um, but I think when George Floyd was murdered, it sort of, and, you know, we had, you know, the country was kind of shut down. Right. Yeah. Uh, we kind of had, it was, those were really dark days that summer in my opinion, but I remember 
kind of just sitting there and sort of talking to Donnie about it. And I said, I think we need a diversity plan. You know, where we started asking, I back up a little bit. I started, we started asking the staff, like, what should we do about this issue? You know, it's like, maybe our cake batter is a little vanilla here. Um, mm-hmm. and it's a paradox too, because, you know, dance music was, you know, started by essentially LGBT uh, black folks, you yep. know? So right um, it's, and it was a, a safe haven for the, a lot of these communities to um, be together and feel safe and connect. And, uh, you know, eventually it became sort of commercialized and yeah. some would argue into kind of bro culture. Yes. you know, in a very white kind of thing. So, you know, we started asking uh, some internal questions. And one of the things I sort of came after talking to staff, it seemed like so many people wanted to do sort of education or work with schools. And I thought to myself, I think that's a great pillar, but I think there's more here. Mm-hmm. So I that summer, I worked on a diversity plan, and there's essentially four pillars to it. And one of them is education. Cool. Uh, but there's other ones like accountability, you know, like looking within things like vendor pools and our own staff and considering these sort of things when we hire and how can we get new people sort of to enter this world, not only as staff, but as fans and persist and be happy in this world. Um, so there are different pillars we kind of looked at. And off that, I, you know, this is a process, by the way, this is not something it's like, oh, got that done. Um, it's, you know, this is basically a set of objectives to kind of work off of in the long run. And um, one of the things, you know, we came up with was was the scholarship in Leon's name. Um, that was something, you know, we took a lot of work to set up, actually. And I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, but the Leon Jackson Memorial Scholarship at Vanderbilt's uh, Blair School of Music was a piece of that. Um, we also developed this thing called Shadow to Spotlight, where we are essentially trying to get people opportunities to get involved with this industry who, you know, show that they're serious about it, you know, and it could be I'm interested in film or I'm interested in AR or I'm interested in whatever, you know, we're trying to offer a little bit of mentorship at festivals. And, you know, for example, if you kind of reached out and resume looked good and you seemed passionate enough, you know, we would essentially take you through the different departments of the festival um, during a day and kind of expose you to different things. What do you like? You know, so uh, that's something we've been working on. Um, so like I said, the work's not done, but you know, that's, those are some of the things we've sort of programs we've sort of set up from them. And we've also been kind of um, looking pretty closely at um, things like lineups, you know, uh, for example, like the sunset lineup this year, I was, I, I didn't necessarily count it. Cause to, it's to me, it's not necessarily about a quota. It's like, yeah, looking at the lineup and going, okay, we have some female representation here, you know, like substantial. Yeah, seriously. I did notice. I did. I didn't count, but I did notice. So things like that. Um, So we've been interested, you know, in in sort of gender equality as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And doing, you know, trying to highlight women in the industry. And I think that's one of the things this spring that I'll probably, you know, now we have the scholarship set up, try to work on a bit more but you know in short you know it's i was talking to an agent at ade and they said uh i'm just sick of looking at these lineups and it's a bunch of you know the same old names and a bunch of white men and these sort of things like let's mix this up a little bit and they're right you know um so i you know those are some of the things that are kind of on our minds but you know this comes down to like even the vendors at a festival you know do you have minority businesses included um uh, we've also taken a really close look at our ADA program, 
um, not only at comms we have on our website, but you know, partnering with organizations that can provide good experiences for these people, whether it's on the beach or in, in a field or in you know in a warehouse. So it's been um, you know, it's 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 the consideration we're trying to take, you know, even further. Um, just to in, basically make festivals more inclusive or welcoming. Love that. Um, so those are some of the things. Uh, but yeah, it's just it's an area of interest for me. And I guess I, I guess if I were recommending to people what to do, you know, start with one of those plans. Yeah. Um, you know, what are those kind of main values you want to work on? And not just throw darts at a dartboard, but like how can this stuff, you know, work as sort of a architecture to just move the organization and society forward. I love that, Evan. I can tell how passionate you are about it. And uh, it's great. Keep yeah. keep doing that. That's huge. And yeah, you know, this is the time of year where a lot of people announce uh, festival lineups. And uh, it's actually been refreshing for me as someone who feels like I have a pretty, you know, finger on the pulse of up and coming artists. I'm seeing a bunch of artists that I've never heard of before. Uh, a lot of female, people of color, whatever it is, right? And then I'm doing my research on them. And that's how people discover these artists and you got to give people a chance. So I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of promoters are kind of feeling that way. I was looking at Coachella the other day and granted yeah, I'm not exactly. a rock guy or something, but you know, I was looking at the lineup and I was like, I think it looks like a fair number of new names on here. So it was uh, good to see, you know, I think, I think there's whole financial sense for that, but also, yeah, you know, as, as lineups reflect um, young people, uh, you know, I guess, you know, ethnic and racial minorities, yeah. women, et cetera. Like it, it, it makes this stuff makes good business sense. Uh, <laughs> yes, you know, sir. it's like, yeah. So, you know, it's, I guess that's another thing. I remember I took a diversity course in college and it was the editor of um, Knight Ritter. This is pretty fortunate to learn under this guy. And um, he was their chief diversity officer too. And he always, would hammer down he's like this stuff makes great business sense i don't know why people are so slow to kind of come around or kind of feel like they're built it into it like this is make like when people see people like themselves on these stages they want to be involved and if it's all yeah. one type of person it's that's it's harder to get a crowd there so absolutely i mean you're doing it for that person and and where we're at right now but you're doing it for the future generations and i think you make a great point people are inspired when they see Hey, I didn't think someone like me could do that. You know, baby weight's a really good example of that. Have you have you heard? Baby weight? Yeah. No, actually, I haven't. Um, you hit me on this, so I'll I'll check it out. Yeah, yeah. A trans person, absolutely amazing, talented artist. I think based in Los Angeles, and um, just has inspired a whole wave of trans people. And it's just so empowering, and I love it. And. Uh, I just see that so much more consistently. And uh, I think really a lot of people's eyes opened up, um, especially after George Floyd. You know, that was just really a, a moment where I feel like a lot of Americans shared sort of that. I don't want to say reality check, but we've faced a lot of those things and acknowledge them. And I think now you're seeing that in dance music more than ever in 2023. Just the gates are going to continue to open up. Yeah, I hope so. And I think so. It seems that way. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I want to talk about the state of the industry, and we've mentioned it a few times today. Uh, I'm, I know you've heard of a thousand one track list before, right? A thousand one track list, yeah. Yeah, of course, right. I know everybody yeah. who watches this has. So they just put out their annual report. To no one's surprise, really, at least mine, Tech House was at the top of uh, the genres played in 2022 at 21 percent market share. 
Um, so, I mean, I guess that does that surprise you at all? No, because yeah. I still DJ from time to time. And, you, yeah. you know, the one thing I noticed playing, my buddy will sometimes have me out to like some of these big Ohio State kind of bars and stuff. And uh, one thing I've noticed is, yeah, it, that your average uh, bar goer is dancing to the John Summit stuff like crazy. <laughs> um, so I, I hate to say it doesn't surprise me, but it it's welcome, you know, for somebody who spent like 20 years playing house and techno yeah. and everybody hated it kind of thing. Or, you know, I didn't say everybody hated it, but it was, you couldn't necessarily get away with playing it in every bar. Um, you had to be choosy about when you did that and play the right venues and right shows. So, mm-hmm. uh, but it's, it's welcome. It's awesome. You know, I saw today, John Summit and Green Velvet, one of my heroes posted something together. Um, you know, over Petco Park in San Diego. I I, I love it. Yeah. John yeah, exactly. is a shiny example of uh, really just staying true. I mean, I, I've known him for a while and it's just been incredible seeing him grow and just being himself throughout the whole process and making music he loves and um you know tech house is it's the space i'm in and uh it's exciting it's really exciting it's it's not surprising to me but like you i'm, I'm a house music lover so it's about mm-hmm. time people actually put up a request that says chris lorenzo and not lady gaga or beyonce so i'm pretty ecstatic if that happens it's it's cool i guess uh i don't know you know another record i was or Thing I was sort of surprised about this year, but then again, not surprised. Um, you know, it's like just when I'm like kind of like, oh, you know, Tiesto and David Guetta, they've kind of done their thing. Like, <laughs> get it just comes out with this record, and it's the biggest record in the club. And I know it's you know, the the, the blue remix and everything, but um, yeah, I full uh, was, was 65, but um, yeah, that record was, was huge, and it was just, I don't know, it's that was another one of those things this year i was like all right okay you know <laughs> we never just, can just lay low for a while and just pop out with the biggest record yeah he's just a hit maker and it's true like i mean tieso david getta so they've all kind of dipped their toe i mean david getta has the jack back project was his tech house they're releasing on defected records and tool room and things of that nature and um yeah. i've had a lot of conversations over the past year of you know quote-unquote elitists right? The TSO can't be in this space. David Guetta can't be in this space. And I'm like, actually, I love that they are because what they're doing is playing tracks from people that are in the tech house space, right? And they're getting their music out there to larger audiences. And it's a good thing. And that's why I just, it's it's always kind of been like that. But, you know, you get into that feel with the the techno and tech house elitists. And I'm like, this is, this is inclusive people. Like, this is a good thing if people love our music. That's kind of what I was saying earlier. It's like, it's not, you know, not everything has to be your cup of tea, but yeah, one more person into this. I also firmly believe there's two types of records, like good ones and bad ones. All this. <laughs> yes. So, so, and so, and so, and so is not underground enough for this genres. Like, I mean, to me, genres and dance music used to mean a little more like pre 99, but like after like the DJ Dan's of the world, like mm-hmm. we're speeding up house to make a techno or vice versa. It's like, it just, to me, it seemed like kind of one big genre. And I, I understand there's obvious differences, but to me, it's two two types of records, good ones and bad ones. I love that. I'm stealing that line from you, Evan. That's perfect. <laughs> you got to call me that line was uh, uh, Frankie Bones. Frankie, Frankie Bones told you that? Okay. All right. All right. That's good. So it's, I can't take credit for it, but it stuck with me. I'll make sure to cite that in my uh, in my thesis paper on house music. Okay. 
right. <laughs> so last question for you, sir. I just want to know what's the plans for uh, for you this year and, and the rest of the Disco Donnie team. I know you had a busy spring that's coming up right now. Anything for the summer, the usual festivals, or what can you share? Um, yeah, I can't share too much. We actually I do have an announcement announcement coming uh probably in the next week or two which i think might surprise some people okay. uh, it's something pretty new for us and it's a festival cool. um so stay tuned i guess you'll you'll see that um right. uh you know we of course we have ubby dubby in april we have paradise blue in cancun in april mm. we have sunset in may um often you know uh, you know, the summer is like festival season. We tend to like lay a little lower in the summer because we tend to produce more festivals in Texas and Florida. And mm-hmm. if you've ever been to Texas or Florida, like in June, it's not necessarily a place you want to have a festival. <laughs> Constantly so, sweating. <laughs> uh, um, sometimes, you know, it, it's it's dicier. So we, we um, but so we kind of focus often on tours over the summer and then in the fall, you know, prop up a few festivals like Wolf Flights All Night and Freaky Deaky and, you know, some travel events probably. So um, we tend to kind of follow these spring and fall patterns. I don't, I'm not sure why, but yeah, yeah, there's definitely something coming in the next couple of weeks that is new and fresh. That's awesome. I'm so excited yeah. to hear about what it's going to be. It's going to be <laughs> the biggest year for you guys ever. And, and congratulations to you. Uh, it's just amazing being able to connect with someone like you, Evan. So once again, I appreciate your me time. Too. And, yeah, thanks uh, for having me. You know, us Midwest guys, we're trying to make it out here together, aren't we? That's right. And I appreciate <laughs> that. Is That's really true. You know, it's a hard <laughs> place to, uh, you know, I know you're in Chicago and but the Midwest from Indianapolis, a, where it's me and Topher Jones, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know Topher very well. Um, I guess you know it's interesting because yeah, in the Midwest, um, it's not like you're in LA or New York um, or even Nashville. Like uh, you really gotta you gotta hustle here to get involved, and it happens, you know. And luckily, a lot of this stuff happens online, but it's definitely a interesting kind of place to come up musically or something. Yeah, well, there is so much history in the Midwest. I mean, Chicago obviously speaks for itself with with blues and house yeah. music. But um, yeah, I'm I'm a Midwest guy till I die. That's for sure. Me too. I can't tell you how many Zoom calls I get on. People are like, "Where are you?" And I'm like, "Cleveland." They're like, "Oh, oh." <laughs> I'm like, "Why?" <laughs> so I'm, they're like, the "I don't know what to follow up with there." <laughs> yeah. It's the third coast. Um, yeah, so Midwest baby, that's right. Midwest baby well Evan thank you so much uh I had so much fun and you've got a really really interesting and broad perspective that uh, I think is definitely going to resonate with my audience so thank you so much sir I hope so thanks for having me on have a great night